Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? The podcast that won't be going on the green list anytime soon. I'm Ross Taylor and with me this week is Ian Dunt, who's now a columnist at The Eye and author of How to Be a Liberal. Hi, Ian. Hello. Ian, this is a new gig at The Eye, isn't it? What are you going to be doing? Exactly the same shit that I've been doing until now. Just I'm just doing it for different people. So I'm no longer going to be writing politics at UK and New European. And they were just like really fantastic places, but uh, no more of that. Uh, and I'll just be at the eye now, sort of two or three times a week, uh, churning out the mixture of extremist liberal propaganda, which I think you've come to, to sort of presume <laughs> that I would be producing. Like, no and love. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, no and love. That's exactly, yes, that's the one. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. Well, congratulations. <laughs> this week, you've been writing about judicial review for politics.co.uk. Yeah. Poor own eye news. They don't know what's about to hit them. <laughs> the, the yeah, it, 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 sound, it sounds quite boring, but it's one of those things that isn't boring, actually, because the government has big plans for judicial review and they are not good, are they? No, they're not. Uh, it's easy to predict, right? Because they basically knock off each area where they could potentially be challenged, right? So whether it's protests or whether it's asylum law and judicial review is one of the main ways that we can challenge a government. It's like a cornerstone of, of British liberty. The idea is that anyone, any individual can take the government to court, can take a minister to court to check their decisions. And the people that tend to use it the most are people who are the most marginalised and the most vulnerable. You know, refugees, asylum seekers, people in detention. And if you are going to have something that you're proud of in this country, it would be that an asylum seeker in detention has the ability to take a minister to court. Now, that is exactly, of course, where they've targeted their attack. They've done it. This is Buckland this time. And so it's it's rather more incremental. It's a little bit less of the sort of fire and brimstone reactionary approach that um, Priti Patel has with her bills. However, what it does seek to do is close off court proceedings at a certain point. So they've done it now in immigration cases with the upper tribunal. Up until now, you could have judicial review against an upper tribunal decision. It would then go on to the Court of Appeal and on and on and up. They've now closed that off. They think effectively, and it probably is effective, at that level. And they're going to start looking around at other areas of law. The first place they're going to look is security and see what they can do about sort of some of the Blair era sort of institutions, very secretive, looking at security issues and see if they can close them off against judicial review as well. So this is more incremental, it's more subtle, and most people won't pay attention to it. But in its own way, on a legal basis, it's just as damaging as those more sort of obviously theatrically draconian attacks from people like Priti Patel. Alex Andreu is an actor, singer, writer and prolific podcaster. Hi, Alex. Hello, Roz. You've been watching the state of Franco-British relations this week. Um, yeah, the how, state of it. How are they? Is it, is it an entente cordiale right now? or is it It's not? neither entente nor particularly cordiale. <laughs> I don't say this. So former um, French ambassador to the UK, Sylvie Berman, says as long as Boris Johnson is in charge, it will be hard for the bilateral relationship to move forward. Former UK ambassador to France, Peter Ricketts, says it's as bad as he can remember it. And talking to contacts and looking at what is being briefed to the papers, I can well believe that. Multiple officials say that the French are exasperated at Johnson's habit of just getting on calls without having even looked over the brief and veering off the subject they were going to talk about to talk about what he wants to talk about. We saw a glimpse of that at the G7, actually. Everyone was pissed off at him at the G7 because they didn't want it to be overtaken by Brexit stuff. They wanted to talk about the global vaccine program. They wanted to talk about China. They wanted to talk about the environment. What did they end up talking about? What Macron said in a private conversation about Northern Ireland. 
And so it's bad at the moment. It is as bad, I think, as I've seen it be. In May, around the Jersey fishing stuff, a, a Home Office official actually briefed to the papers that Macron had small dick energy. I mean, this is where we're at at the moment. The, the reason it matters is because I think there is a danger that we slide from being seen as unreliable to being seen as someone with whom other countries can't do business at all. And at, at a time when we're looking for business, that is catastrophic. He definitely doesn't have small dick energy, does he, Macron? I mean, he's got many faults, but you don't think... No. You don't look at him and think small dick. No, I mean, I think sort of Napoleon or would-be Napoleon. He's, he's massively <laughs> eager. I love the nation that Ian looks at Macron and thinks about his dick at all. <laughs> I've thought of nothing else, that, darling. It, I, makes me, <laughs> it makes me smile. <laughs> Our special guest this week is Christina Pargel, Director of the Clinical Operational Research Unit at UCL and a member of Independent SAGE. Hello, Christina, and welcome to the show. Hello. Have you had any kind of break since March 2020? <laughs> <laughs> you must be exhausted. Are you getting a holiday this year? I have. I've taken my holiday. I took them early because I wasn't sure what was going to happen this summer. You know, like COVID planning. So, yeah, I've been to Scotland, been to Wales. I'm now watching the Olympics, which is amazing. Like, it's such a break. Honestly, I'd forgotten how much I love the Olympics, so it's a little slice of normality every day. Before we start, a quick update on our live show coming this Tuesday, August the 10th at the Leicester Square Theatre. We're taking a few extra steps to make it properly COVID secure. We stopped selling tickets with the venue at 75% capacity to make extra room for social distancing. It'll be an all-masks audience, so please don't forget yours. And we're having a longer interval and no merchandising stall to cut down on crowding in the bar. Also, for those who don't fancy the trip into town or aren't in London, we've decided to stream the whole thing live for free to our Patreon backers. We'll be live online from 7pm on Tuesday the 10th, so if you want to watch the show, search Patreon Oh God What Now podcast and sign up to support us. Invitations are going out to Patreon backers before the weekend. And for those who are coming to the theatre, special late-breaking news. Bring a pen. There will be bingo. (laughs) For real. We'll see you there, virtually or in real life. Firstly, are we finally seeing the beginning of the end of the COVID pandemic in the UK? Or have we been here too many times before? Christina, the government's just announced that 16 and 17 year olds will be offered jabs. Do you welcome that? Yeah, I mean, of course I welcome it, but they should really be offering them to 12 to 17 year olds. We just did some analysis, actually, that's under review um, with the Lancet looking at that risk-benefit calculation that the CDC and the states published. JCVI haven't published anything. And what it is is that if you vaccinate teenagers, there are 4 million, roughly, in England, then you know what the harms are, right? If you know that it's, say, 40 per million cases of heart inflammation, which is what they're worried about, then you know that if you vaccinate everybody, you'll end up with about 160 cases. So that's given. But then there are harms from covid So maybe for a million people with COVID, 5,000 children might end up in hospital. So how much COVID is there going to be to offset that risk from the vaccine? And we did those calculations and you'd have to get to levels below where we were in April for it to kind of equal out. And we're nowhere near that. We're 10 times higher at the moment. And so actually vaccinating children will prevent about you know several thousand hospitalizations just over the next few months. So the risk benefit is just there. 
And that's without thinking about long COVID. It's without thinking mm. about infection taking you off school. It's without thinking about variants. It's without thinking about onward transmission. Any of that stuff, it's still beneficial. So, so for me, it's like, why are they not doing it 12 to 17? Why haven't they started it in time for the next school year? Because we're not really going to be able to vaccinate people fully till the next well, before September. I, I heard someone from the World Health, Health Organization, I can't remember the name, I'm afraid, saying that there's a danger that if you sort of leave a group of unvaccinated people, it can become a reservoir where mm -hmm. the illness basically keeps renewing. Um, is, is that is that right? Is that true? Yeah, I mean, I think so. It's basically they're their own little herd, mm. if you like, and they're unvaccinated. And so you will always have people who are susceptible to getting it. We know that variants are a threat. We've had two big ones already. We had Alpha in January and now we've got Delta. It's not going to be the last one. Hmm. So just letting it circulate is a risk. But also it just means we're putting all this risk on kids. We actually don't know what the long-term impacts of COVID are. It's only been around 18 months. We don't know if it has potential issues at 10 years, 15 years down the line. We know that after Spanish flu in 1918, there was a kind of mini epidemic of Parkinson's about 15, 20 years later, which people mm. think was associated with it. But we don't know that, right? It just seems mm. like a really big risk to take for a vaccine that we actually know is really safe. They vaccinated over 9 million kids in the States. You know, we're out of step with the rest of the world on this. Now, in January, when we extended the doses, we published the the reasoning behind it and it was good reasoning and we supported it but they haven't published the reasoning at all so that's kind of what I think is weird if you're doing something different then you have to explain why I mean there is the argument that we shouldn't be jabbing kids or teenagers say when other countries don't have enough vaccines for the vulnerable does that stack up in your view is that is that fair argument I mean we're also going to uh, give boosters I think to over 50s from the autumn is the plan and there's been an argument that we should delay doing that until later just to try and roll out more to other countries what's your what's your thoughts on that I think it's a bit of a, a false dichotomy I mean I can't quite see why it's fine to do an 18 year old but not a 17 year old based on that you know the best way to support vaccine rollout in lower middle income countries is to waive the vaccine patents, allow more production, support them in getting the materials and the production locally and the logistics of actually getting jabs into arms. And we can do that and we're not doing that. In fact, I mean, the only Western countries <laughs> that are refusing the vaccine waiver are Britain and Germany. So that, that would be a much, much bigger and better thing to do than 4 million doses that actually is a drop in the ocean when it comes mm. to vaccinating the rest of the world. We've actually seen a big fall off in demand for jabs recently. I mean, there's relatively few 18, I think, to 34-year-olds who are getting vaxxed now. And there's now a move to bribe people, essentially, with things like free Deliveroo and discounts on Uber and things like that. Is that the right approach, do you think? I mean, should we should we be appealing to people's personal greed? Or would you like to see a more a more sort of whole society approach like the one we've seen earlier in the pandemic where we said, you know, protect the NHS, think about these people? Or, or, or do we just need to do whatever we need to do? I mean, ultimately, I want people to be vaccinated. And quite how we get there, I, I don't really care. I think vouchers and delivery things... I mean, will it work? You know, why not just give people five or ten quid? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> I mean, the biggest issue with, with younger people seems to be convenience and misinformation. So those are the things I think we have to tackle. We have to make it really convenient. So certainly for like when I got my job, I had to make the effort to go and make an appointment. And 
also you have to make it so people don't necessarily have to drive or don't you know they have to travel far take mm. it to where people are take it to where <laughs> to where people are doing things preferably move to something like the Johnson and Johnson jab which is one jab and people don't have to come back and tackle misinformation which is just rife i mean we've actually got about 70% of 18 to 24 year olds have had one jab it's not like we have this massive vaccine hesitancy it's just about reaching that last 20 30% of people we've taken a bit of a half-assed approach to vaccine passports in this country haven't we because you know unlike in France where basically it's going to be impossible to do much that's fun unless you're vaccinated and I think even New York now is having bringing in a a, a ban on dining indoors unless you have been double vaxxed but you know here we've had oh it, they might be needed for clubbing if the clubs don't impose it they might be compulsory for students but now apparently they won't be it, what clearly the, the 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 Conservative Party is confused about its approach to them. But what what should we have taken a harder line on vaccine passports as France has, for example? I mean, I am really in two minds about vaccine passports. So I was quite anti them on the grounds that actually a lot of people who were hesitant about the vaccine had good reasons to be hesitant, particularly people from ethnic minorities who we know have, you know, we know there's structural racism in how people access healthcare. And we know that people have genuine concerns about that. And you can try and address those concerns and answer those questions instead of trying to force people. So if you're worried about the state, then having a vaccine passport is not going to alleviate that worry. But that said, seeing what happened in France and seeing the massive uptake they've had since then, you kind of think, well, actually... It does seem to work. But then they've also had the protests. And, and what you don't have in France is I don't think they collect data on um, ethnicity. Do they? It's not, not even legally allowed yeah, to. Yeah, I think. haven't seen any. So, so what, you, what I don't know is how they're going to evaluate who's now being left out of mm. public life that way. Um, so I think if we did do it here, you would absolutely have to make vaccines very easy to get. And you would have to have a really big push on involving the communities that are more hesitant to do it. So that, so I think they have to come together if you're going to do it. My sense was that they were doing it to nudge. Did did anyone else think that, mm. or am I alone? There's a widespread that they were saying, "Ooh, you know, you need a vaccine passport to go to the pub," and then suddenly, like a million young people think, "Shit, I better get my vaccine," but then they don't have to actually carry it out as it were they can just keep threatening yeah. to the do trouble it with it won't work forever is that you, you can never tell when they're just being inept and going one way or the other <laughs> or if it's a strategic <laughs> background true. check and it could be either see i i actually don't think it is nudge because i think the government does have an ideological thing about no ids mm. and i think that kind of is what worries them about it so but, it's the trolling that yeah, Cummings is talking about, isn't it? Yeah, like, I mean... And I, veers yeah. one way and then another. I also wonder how well they would do it. Because I think if, it, you know, unless they're well checked, unless you can actually tell if it's a genuine vaccine possible, people will just get fake ones. I'm not quite sure how they're going to prevent that. Still, I'm sure they'll do it very well indeed. <laughs> I think there are, there are big problems with that. Actually, I mean, I think in France they want to they want to have a rule basically where if your teenager isn't vaccinated, then they have to self isolate when there's a case in their class. And I mean, given that, as you say, there are some communities who are going to be reluctant to vaccinate, I, I can see that leaving a lot of people behind and not just causing resentment, but more and more loss of education. So it's really it is really problematic. And you kind of you're seeing in the states they're having this really aggressive conversation about vaccination, which I really don't want to see here, where they're calling it, you know, the pandemic of the unvaccinated and being really kind of saying they're selfish, they're, they're ruining it for everyone else. And it's just real harsh language. I just think that's not, that's not going to help. Like, I can't see how that's going to help anything. So tell us about 
the cases at the moment because there's been a fall, albeit I think it's a bit up again today, which is not not very good news. But there's been a, a fall over the last 10 days or so in cases, which is not really what we, we were expecting after opening up. What do you think is the, it's always hard to tell, but what, what do you think are the reasons behind that? I think it's fair to say that no one really expected it, including the government who were kind of preparing us for 100,000 cases a day by now. The fact that we're not there is obviously really good news. And I think the first thing is that it is does seem to be genuine. The hospital admissions have fallen this week. And we've seen a slowdown in, in ONS infection survey, which is kind of an independent check. So it looks like it is genuine. It's probably a factor of school disruption. So the last couple of weeks of school, maybe 15, 20% of kids are off school. I think that actually that does make a big difference. Um, the end of the Euros, <laughs> um, when we saw massive spikes in men, that has now gone. So it's kind mm. of passed through. But I think what happened was that ONS said that last week, 6% of adults said they were self-isolating. And you can isolate for 10 days and that's after the Euros. And actually, that's quite a big chunk of people who might normally be out and about who aren't out and about. I think, you know, things like hot weather. I mean, there are all kinds of things that come together. I think what it isn't is herd immunity because we just haven't, you know, if, if we were getting to a stage where there are enough people immune to slow things down, you'd see a gradual slowing of growth, a bit of a plateau and then a gradual fall as there are a few and few people. What you don't see is 40% growth one week and 40% decline the next week. And you see it everywhere at the same time in all age groups. And that doesn't really make any sense because, you know, different different age groups and different places have different levels of immunity. So it just, mm. it can't be that. But it could be that we're close enough that changes in behaviour actually can flip you either side of kind of growing yeah. or shrinking. And I, I, I'm thinking that's where we are. Because it's about 93% of adults have some kind of antibodies, whether it's because they've had COVID or they're vaccinated, I think at the moment that's the latest yeah, sort of figure. Yeah, but don't forget that after one dose, this doesn't really give you very much protection. Mm. So, I mean, antibodies don't necessarily tell you how likely you are to get COVID. So we can see that COVID is going to be an endemic disease, but of course we can't, we, we don't know how many people it will continue to, to kill. I mean, given that it's going to be in circulation all over the world, what, what, practically speaking, can we do to reduce the chance of more virulent new variants, do you think? I mean, we talked earlier about vaccinating teenagers and how that could help. What what else can we do? I mean, people talk about it being endemic, but there's different types. Endemic just means you're at kind of a, a steady state where it's not growing massively and it's not shrinking massively. But what the level at which you reach that really matters, right? If we plateau at 20 cases a day, 20,000 cases a day, that's really different to plateauing at 500 or 100 cases a day Mm. Um, and they're both endemic situations so what we should be aiming for is really low levels where you're in a position where if you get an outbreak um, you know among a population you can do something about it Mm. and you can do something about it without restricting life for other people and that that's the ideal if you end up with a really high level of endemicity you not only put a continuous burden on your on your hospitals and your healthcare and workplaces and actually make life really difficult for old or shielding people, you also create more and more risk and more and more opportunities for the virus to keep mutating. And that's what we don't want. So for me, it's about what level of endemicity you're actually aiming for. What's your personal approach to the risk? I mean, what sort of things do you avoid doing? I think now that the restrictions are pretty much all gone, many of us are just trying to navigate our own way through and decide what makes sense. Well, what do you avoid doing? What are the deal breakers for you in, at the moment? So I have basically gone back to step two of the roadmap like I, I'll go to people's houses for dinner I'll do that 
but that's about it. I'm not going. I'm not really going inside to restaurants. I'm not going to the movies. I'm not going to theatre. I'm not. You know, all these things that I want to do, I'm not doing. I wouldn't go to a big house party. Um, I'm not travelling internationally. And I thought I was the anomaly, but actually, if you look again at the ONS service, which is just so useful. Something like 70% of people were really worried about moving to step four. And behaviour hasn't really changed that much. We haven't actually gone back to the contacts we had pre-pandemic. And and then you think, well, maybe that's another reason why we didn't see this massive mm. rise in cases, because I'm not I'm not on my own in this, it turns out. And I kind of thought maybe I would be and everyone else would go nuts. But, yeah, totally. But, <laughs> but um, we do a mix. Like, I will go to the cinema because I've really missed the cinema. Yeah, yeah. But I will go to the cinema on, like an early showing on a Monday night mm. when it's just me and two other people in the in the cinema. So that's my way of mitigating the risk. But it's it's there's gonna be months of this, isn't there? Where yeah. But I, I what what struck me was that you're putting yourself in a situation where you know the people so you can assess whether you can trust the group or not, rather than in situations where you don't know the risks that group might take. So maybe that's what... Well, and, and I'll probably avoid my friends with kids once schools go back, which sounds really mean. <laughs> like, you know what? Just it sounds like perfectly me. sensible to me. <laughs> no, no, no. It sounds like you've been looking for an excuse for years. <laughs> I've been avoiding my friends with kids for decades. <laughs> Sorry, Roz. We love yes, you, really. Every single parent listening. We <laughs> no, that's all right. No, I'm sorry to have spawned, guys. Um, <laughs> let's talk. Let's talk a bit about long COVID because you've warned a lot about the danger. What we don't know about long COVID and the risks of it. Are we any closer to being able to treat long COVID or have any idea of how prevalent it is? I mean, I don't think we're that much closer to being able to treat it. There aren't any kind of approved treatments for it. Um, you tend to kind of be treating the symptoms and, and they've now just started with all these long, specialised long COVID clinics to try and help people, I guess, manage their symptoms. We know a bit more about prevalence, but it's again, it's a really hard thing to measure because you're kind of relying on people to self-report how they're feeling. Um, and it's not like you have a blood test. A lot of people didn't get a COVID test, so you can't even prove that they've had COVID, which is quite a barrier actually to accessing care. Um, antibody tests aren't very good for telling if you've had COVID several months later. So that's quite hard, but you have different ways of measuring it, but it looks as if it's somewhere between 10% and 50%, right? And that of people who have COVID end up with long-term symptoms. Now that's a really, really big range, but what it is is that even the smallest number is a, is a huge number of people. Mm. So I think we do have to take it seriously. And people can say, well, it might resolve after 12 weeks or 16 weeks or whatever. I'm like, that's a really, that's a really long time. Like, I do not want to be out of action for three months. And if you're a young person who's working or studying or at school, that's a massive dent in your education. Mm. What has most surprised you about the pandemic and the way it's played out? I mean, I don't know how much you thought about how what a pandemic would be like before it happened. But what, what, what has really taken you by surprise in the way it's been managed and the way I suppose the virus has mutated as well. I mean, did you did you expect it to mutate so fast? Were we slightly foolish to think that it wouldn't? 
I mean, to be honest, what surprises me the most is that anyone listens to me about anything. It's always surprised me as well. It's yeah. <laughs> and my mum, he's always like, why are they talking to you again? You didn't say anything different. I'm like, I, um, I mean, one of the most surprising things is how much, how quickly we got used to it. Like, I remember, do you remember the first lockdown? I remember watching Boris Johnson say, you can't leave your home, exercise once a day. And I remember going out for my run, seeing a policeman and just being like, fucking hell, like, this is, it felt like you were in a movie, like, seriously, <laughs> like, end of the world movie and this is it. And what are we doing? And he had no idea if it was going to work. We didn't know what's going to happen to the NHS. I didn't know if I was going to see my parents again. I mean, like, it was really quite a big thing. And by the third lockdown, it was like, all right, I've got this. I kind of know what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, and you kind of have your mechanisms and people stop bothering with Zoom, you know, Zoom parties. Well, at least I had by then. And, and that's what surprised me is actually now we're in a world where things that two years ago seem unimaginable, like people, everyone wearing a mask on public transport ever, just now are normal. Mm. And that, you just kind of think, well, how adaptable are we? And, and what's the next big thing that in 10 years' time we think, oh my God, I can't believe we were doing X. In terms of the variants, like, well, I wasn't expecting it, but I'm not a virologist. <laughs> I mean, all I, you know, the last summer it was all like, oh, it's mutating really slowly, we're fine. And now, you know, we look back on the good old days of shitty old COVID that could barely spread compared to Delta and you're like, bring it back. Um, <laughs> but, Basic but, COVID. But I think... Yeah. <laughs> COVID bitch. I think once, once Alpha came along, and I remember I was WhatsApping you at the time and I was listening to the press conference and he said it's more transmissible and I was like, that's really, really bad news. Hmm. Then you're like, okay, well, this is going to be a problem. And we've seen it be a problem and and there'll be new variants for sure. And what we just don't know is quite how far it can go in terms of vaccine resistance. This is a, that was a really ominous note. You're not going to end the session there, are you? That's <laughs> fucked. <laughs> dun, dun. <laughs> Has anyone got any other questions? For, what for makes Christine? you happy? <laughs> What's your favourite food? Anything but that. If you want ominous, you have to go back to bird flu, which is coming and it's much worse. Oh, Jesus. No, you know what? Definitely end that segment. End that segment quickly. <laughs> Last week, the FT revealed the existence of the Tory party's advisory board, a secretive club for major donors who have monthly meetings with Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak. Unsurprisingly, the club does not appear in any party literature, with Mohamed Amersi, a businessman and Tory donor, telling the FT that to join, one needs to cough up to £250,000 per annum or be a friend of Ben Elliott, who is co-chair of the Tory party. This, incidentally, is even more exclusive than the pre-existing leaders group, where donors gave only £50,000 and have monthly lunches with ministers. Sources say that in these meetings, donors have repeatedly called for lower taxes. Alex, the Tory co-chair Ben Elliott, who's in charge of all this apparently, is not an MP or a peer. Who is he? So Ben Elliott is a very rich, very well-connected guy. Um, he's very well thought of in high circles. Um, <laughs> he's on the board of trustees for, for so many charities and museums and classical music venues and organisations that, you know, we could devote half this podcast to naming what boards he sits on. Um, so he's a classic behind-the-scenes fixer. That's what he is. And 
In fact, among his many business interests, his central one is as that. So he runs a sort of posh concierge company that will do things like get albino uh, peacocks for Jennifer Lopez's birthday party. And no, that's not an example I've made up. That is something his company has actually done. For Jennifer so, Lopez or for someone else? For Jennifer Lopez. Oh, that's a shame. I always so, um, according to the Times report, th- this company was offering rich clients PCR tests to stockpile back last year in March when we were struggling to get enough for frontline NHS stuff and care homes. So, like I said, he's highly thought of in those circles. Beyond that, I couldn't tell you. But he has close links to the royal family, doesn't he, and our future head well, of state? Well, I think more than close links, yeah. he's Camilla's fucking nephew. Yeah, I couldn't believe this when I read it. It's like, how? How? <laughs> Could they be that Between close? that and the albino peacocks, that's the thing that, <laughs> that surprises you. Fair. <laughs> How How is it possible to keep the members of this group secret when big party donations have to be declared to the Electoral Commission? I mean, it's very easy. The donations are all there. You know, the, the JVC guy gave half a million a few days after he was made a peer. So we do it's basically not, know who these people we, are. We, we know who these people may be. Mm. Let's put it that way. They call Ben Elliott... Uh, in the Tory party, by the way, the bailiff, that's his nickname, because he can squeeze money out of people. Uh, And the coffers of the Conservative Party have never been fuller. So he's doing a very, very good job. While we flail around and debate, um, he's bringing in the cash that will win the next election. So... Look, it goes back to what George Carlin used to say, that people who want to change things, they make the fundamental mistake of looking for the conspiracy, as if these people are going to get together and discuss, you know, formally a plan to deny the 99% wealth. They don't, and they don't have to. You know, these people go to the same schools, they graduate from the same universities, they belong to the same clubs, they go to the same galas. They know what's good for them. They have a complete alignment of interests. They don't need to sit down and discuss it and come up with some sort of conspiracy. They will just give money to the people that they need to buy effectively. And when you're in a two-party system... 600 MPs, that's really very few people they need to buy. (laughs) You know, if you think of the amount of money and influence they have, it's really a very small group of people they they need to influence to get whatever it is they want to get. There's a good, I think it's an Adam Smith quote about this, which I'm about to bastardize, but I think he said something like, whenever you see two businessmen in the street talking to each other, they're engaged in a conspiracy against the people. (laughs) (laughs) But but you know what I mean? We imagine that, you know, something with hoods and candles, but there's no no such thing. You know, it's, it's actually a really easy and obvious plan for the, not even the 1%, for the 0.01%. They need to make that group as impossible to be relegated from as it can be 
and as impossible to be promoted into as it can be. That's it. That's the plan. That's all of it. They don't need to discuss it. You know, presented with a with a binary choice of policies, there is always the one that obviously will preserve privilege and the one that won't. It's not a difficult thing. Ian, moving beyond the advisory board uh, to, to Johnson himself, he's you know a relatively poor man, as he's implied himself. He struggles for money. And the arrival of a little Johnson next winter, <laughs> another one, is unlikely to make that easier. Um, it's already clear that a Tory party donor paid for his flat refurb. He believes this is a private matter. Why isn't this stuff a private matter? I mean, nothing to do with the funding of a prime minister is a private matter because it's an avenue of potential influence. I mean, at that point, I mean, for them to even try it on in the first place was just the most fantastically stupid thing. There is no possible way of justifying that. We have a very clear idea sort of throughout political you don't need to get all profumo about this shit to you know recognize how that dynamic can potentially work i mean it is obviously unacceptable and any prime minister before him certainly over our lifetime would not have considered that an acceptable state of affairs well apart from maybe tony blair who was pretty fucking grubby with some of that stuff and, and for, <laughs> but, but and for such a low consideration oh, that's no. the thing that's that really like bugs me that he sold himself for a couple of rolls of gold wallpaper <laughs> What are the what are the loopholes that let Prime You would have gone for at least two white peacocks, <laughs> right? It'd be like, fuck the wallpaper, I want the peacocks. Bring me the albino peacocks <laughs> all day long. And J-Lo. Sorry, I love the way that you got stuck up on the practicalities well, of a white the, the peacock. peacocks are nice because they have big colourful tails. <laughs> so why do you want a white one? I don't know, because they're rare. It's rare. Who knows? It's rare. It's like whiskey. It's, um, as well, long as why it's not rare, an albino tortoise then? I mean, well, now you say it, that sounds like a pretty fucking good idea, to be honest. I would pay over the hill for a white tortoise. <laughs> let's, let's call his company. <laughs> let's, let's join call, I would let's like a special <laughs> edition of this podcast where we all join quintessentially. <laughs> let's crowdfund <laughs> 12 albino tortoises to be delivered to me tomorrow. And I want them riding on the back of a Tory MP. And if it doesn't happen, I'm pulling the fucking funding. And here's our advertising spot coming up. Have you heard of... You know, <laughs> um, but, but what are the loopholes that let prime ministers and ministers behave in this way? What do we need to tighten up on to stop them doing it? Oh, there's no, there is no loophole. The whole fucking system is a whole. I mean, you look at, you know, even Eric Pickles, who's hardly the most aggressive guy, but, you know, once you put him in charge of the, the advisory commission on our business appointments, he just sits and goes, well, this is, this is nothing here. There's nothing, I can't do anything with this. You look at the register for um, for consultant lobbyists. And that is a completely paper-thin, pointless development. It's covering people, you know, pri- private sector consultancies, okay? Now, these guys are like 1% of the lobbying that goes on. What we need to deal with is stuff that's in-house. But in-house lobbyists do not need to go on the register. Even then, the kind of things that are registered are typically fa- the predominantly face-to-face meetings. We know from the way that lobbying operates, the face-to-face meetings are very much not the be-all and then doing a lot of this goes on on WhatsApp it goes on through phone conversations mm. the, only, the seniority at which you need to register it is extremely high so you're dealing with ministers you're dealing with permanent secretaries permanent secretaries basically you know the, the boss of a department in the civil service civil servants below that don't need to talk about it SPAD special advisors these are the guys that are brought in 
sort of by ministers, if the world made any fucking sense at all, they would bring in, because they can do whatever they like with special advisors. You could have an expert in whatever field you're, you're supposed to be in charge of. But of course, they never fucking do that. What they mm. do is they bring in a guy to advise them on politics and advise them on communications, even though these departments already have a fucking communications department within them. Nevertheless, the SPADs, you have a meeting with the SPAD, that doesn't need to be put in the register. It is, there are no loopholes. The whole thing is just a big fucking hole. It's a big loophole. Mm. <laughs> Why does it get so little traction? this why do not enough people care about it at the moment we've talked about that a lot haven't we and and I, I, I was thinking about some of the answers that I've given before and there's a you know I think you and I have both sort of said this, similar things you know it's quite hard to get people and there's a money trail it's a complex story it's not the same as you know Hancock snogged someone in his office it's obviously a different kettle of fish but you know the, uh, the truth is you do think back to the sort of brown paper envelope stuff of the John Major years. And I know it's by virtue of there being a brown paper envelope, it's more immediate and obvious and, and sort of almost dramatic, theatrical. But I don't think it's just that. I, I, I can't help but feel that there's been a de- like a deterioration in our assessment of how government works. I think that's to do with the financial crisis. It's to do with stuff at the BBC. It's to do with phone hacking. It's, it's to, to do, do with, with MPs' Brexit. expenses. It's to do, do with, with Brexit. Brexit. Was big just trap door for We just don't stuff. expect, really, that, that, that we are going to have very high principles in government. Mm. We just think people do pay for access. Yeah. There's an assumption of it's just fucking corrupt. And that has veered against us horribly. So now when we're presented with an administration that is so much more pernicious in, a, in this kind of practice, paradoxically, it causes them even less damage because the whole of our political culture has deteriorated in such a severe way. Chris Gray wrote a very smart piece for Byline Times this week in which he was basically saying that we, we are left with the trappings of democracy but a hollowed out centre And you can see that he makes a very good example of the parliamentary language debate. We we enforce meticulously the rules on parliamentary language, but the morality that lies behind those rules, which is that you, you mustn't behave like an oik, we do not enforce, and in fact, we expect them to behave like oiks. It's also a function of the poor quality of people who go who go into government now, mm. Mm. and I think there's all kinds of reasons for that. But it's it is you, we have such low expectations of, politi- of politicians. Not, I think also we've just take democracy for granted that we haven't seen here how corruption can poison your democracy and how fragile it can be, and so you just don't see the danger and you don't believe the danger, and you're seeing it in the states as well. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, and and there's this concept that as a foreigner I noticed from the moment I arrived here, this above board the concept of above board that if I declare something somehow the conflict goes away but no, you're declaring something for people to see there's no conflict. You know a health minister, I remember Andrew Lansley receiving a donation from the owner of a private health care company to his private office while he was health secretary and it's like you can't declare that conflict away it doesn't disappear just because you've said look I'm taking money from this guy (laughs) Christina I wanted to talk to you about PPE procurement because as someone close to the NHS I'm sure you've you've observed it with with the horror the way that contracts went straight to friends and contacts of the cabinet and Dominic Cummings and so on. I mean, there's an argument, obviously, that we had to act quickly and that every other country has been doing the same thing. Where, from where you're standing, what, what, did it, what did it look like? I mean, I actually find this a really difficult question. You know, when things really went bad in March, 
everybody I knew was trying to do something and and you and you just want to do something and to do that you reach out to the people that you know and you trust because you that's just how networks work right so I was involved a bit in the London Nightingale and setting that up and it was kind of this this expanding network of people reaching out to people they'd work with people they trusted people they knew were good all coming together and doing something you know, quite extraordinary. It wasn't necessarily, in retrospect, maybe the best choice, but it felt like it at the time. Or the kind of research collaborations that I, that I worked in, or even things like Independent Sage, right? It's people that, that you know. But the issue with that is you don't necessarily get the best people. You leave out all the people who are already left out because they don't have access mm. to those kind of contacts. Um, and there's no scrutiny, and you're not necessarily doing the things you need to do. So in PPE, you know, like they spend millions on the face mask with loops. When you can't wear that in the hospital, you need, you know, much better fitting masks. And and it's it's how do you balance the need for transparency and competence against speed and the natural instinct to go with people you trust? And And I don't know what the answer to that is. But I think we need to work it out before before a pandemic. You know, that's part of mm. pandemic planning, isn't it? It's putting in place the processes that let you react to things really, really quickly. Yeah, because they let the stocks of PP basically they sat around for too long. And they expired. I think yeah. that was the case, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And we didn't. And the, and the thing is, we didn't have enough. And they knew that from the beginning. And they could see what was going on in Italy. And yet, somehow, it was like, no, no, we're fine. At a time when my friends were in hospitals, like, we're not fine. Yeah. It's like the people who try to get home insurance after the house was flooded. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, like, uh, we don't have it. But I, I have a view, even if you need to do things quickly and you need to balance that speed with the propriety, after the initial crisis has gone, you don't go around hiding what you've done. And this, to me, is the big, big problem with this government, that they didn't come forward to say, look, it was an emergency. Here are the texts. Here is who got what contract. You have to drag it out of them, one freedom of information request at a time. That, to me, indicates a problem. And you don't make the same mistakes again. Yeah. That's the, whereas we did. You've actually, Rosie, you've actually been looking at the sort of post-Brexit state aid malarkey, which I presume is going to hammer home quite hard when it comes to this stuff. Yeah, it's a new state aid regime because, of course, Brexit means we can basically decide on our own state aid and we don't have to run parts of it by Brussels before we spend loads of money. Now, there's a very, very vague criteria for what should qualify for state aid. There's talk about levelling up. Now, what the hell levelling up might mean is a constant source of interest and discussion among people in public policy. <laughs> and it's a very interesting topic. And we're still, you know, trying to work out exactly <laughs> what it means. Levelling up means levelling up. But it means whatever you want it to mean, rather like Brexit in yep. many ways. Um, and then there's, you know, there should be some state aid aimed at post-pandemic recovery. Well, there are very few industries that actually prospered in, in during the pandemic. Um, there's a case you, you cases you can make from all across Britain for post-pandemic recovery. And what this means in practice is that it will be possible to fast track approvals for state aid and get them signed off effectively by central government and by regional and national go- national government. 
quite easily because the checks and balances that previously existed weren't there. And there will be a kind of unit that looks at this stuff, but it will be very hard to appeal against the stuff. There's a very, there's a very short time frame in which you'll mm. have the right to do that. And basically, I worry that given the amount of cronyism we've, we're seeing from this government, that state aid will become another way of friends and contacts of conservatives enriching themselves. Now, I may be wrong about that, but it is another pathway, another opportunity that Brexit has opened up for personal enrichment. I bet you're not wrong about that. I mean, what, what could have led you to this conclusion except for the entirety of the way they've behaved for the last two years? Yeah, for the last two years, for the last 45 years. <laughs> that's the bit that annoys me. When have they done any different? Oh, no, there is. I think there is a distinction, certainly, especially with just the, the obviousness of it. So I think morally, you, you're, you're right, you know, Cameron Johnson is pretty much the same. But but even then, it, it, there was still like an attempt, you know, <laughs> to actually put some respect. Sure, but the point is, it's things. a nexus, isn't it? It's a it's a sliding scale, but it's still the same nexus that we're travelling on. Now it's time for Underrated, Overrated. Our guest, Christina Pargel, is in the hot seat this week. Christina, what have you chosen? I've gone with an Olympics theme because that is, that's what I've been doing for the last two weeks. Um, not doing the Olympics, watching the Olympics. So underrated is I've decided to go with women's weightlifting um, because it's quite addictive. And, I, and I've been thinking about what makes it good. So one of the things is that... Um, it's actually really tactical because they get to choose their weights and they get to choose their weights and, and they can see what other people have done. So it kind of changes as you go along. It's really difficult. So especially the women, like, I mean, obviously I'm a woman, but, you know, they're lifting, you know, two times my body weight over their heads. <laughs> I'm just like, Jesus Christ. Like that is just genuinely impressive. It's quite short. So they're only six lifts and you can tell if someone's done it. So like unlike I love, you know, I love diving, I love gymnastics, but I have no idea whether one pair is better. I need the commentator to tell me that a triple twisting flip is better than a tuck forward somersault or whatever. I don't know and I can't tell. But with weightlifting, they're just holding this big thing above their head till a beep goes off. I mean, it's really impressive. And then when they drop it, and the joy, it's just like I just. Burst into tears every time they do a lift. <laughs> I burst into tears. It gets quite tiring. After it's, a while. It's, it's just incredible. It's brilliant. It's quite primeval, isn't it? Because it's almost like you could imagine people having sports sort of competitions two or three thousand years yeah. ago, in which they're showing how yeah. heavy the boulders that they can lift are. And it always feels like it's the kind of yeah primeval part of the Olympics, uh, <laughs> even more so than running a long way, which is you know clearly Greek, as Alex will know very well, has a what running a long way. I think it predates. I'm sure it does. Classical Greece. <laughs> I don't know, like you know, the the British woman who got silver the other day, Emily Campbell, and I was watching it, and she had to go eight kilograms higher than she'd ever lifted before to win silver, wow. and she could have stuck with bronze, but no, she said, I'm going to go for it. And then it's the one where they have to kind of put it up onto their shoulders and then do the splits and lift it up above the head or whatever and you kind of get halfway Listen, there listeners won't know this but Christina is currently doing the least convincing reenactment <laughs> of lifting a heavy object that I've ever seen <laughs> but it was just 
it was just amazing. And, you know, she was one of the only ones that didn't have lottery funding and been supported by her community. She only did it for, for five years. And you're just like, this is, this is, like, I'm just, I just love it. I love the kind of, the, of the more random sports, the fact that people do it because they love it because there's literally no other reason to do it. It doesn't give you fame. It doesn't give you glory. It doesn't give you money. It's hard work, but they do it because they love it. And then in that four years, they've achieved their life stream. And how can that not be? I, I just feel so lucky to be able to watch it. Like, I just love it. I absolutely love the Olympics. <laughs> but what's overrated, in your opinion? Oh, the 100 metres. <laughs> ah. Yeah, that one. Well, because firstly, it's over so quickly that you don't really get into it. It's like, what, 9.8 seconds or whatever. And then there's no real tactic to it. You just run as fast as you can. Um, and it's kind of, it's a little bit too much glory, a little bit too much machismo. And I think if you really wanted to watch someone going as fast as they possibly could, then you watch the 200 metres, actually, which is where you get to see proper running for a bit longer. Mm. You have, what? I love the distinction. It's like, sort of weirdly hipster as well. 100 metres is for wimps. (laughs) 200 metres, that's the real game. you You have a little bit more suspense as you watch the stagger unravel around the bend. You don't quite know where everyone is until they get around the bend. You get to watch someone running around a bend which if you're thinking about running away from someone is a really useful skill. So you want to see straight running and bended running. So I think if you actually just want fast running, it's the 200 metres. I am so with you that like when the, they bring up like the analyst after the 100 metre thing and there's nothing to fucking analyse. Literally yeah. the analyst is always yeah, just like, like, yeah, no, he ran faster. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's no the, form. The, the, person, the person that got the best start. Yes, yeah, the start. Yeah. <laughs> And this, I'm sure there's more going on there that I understand, but mostly they just suddenly go, yeah, no, the fa- fast, fast bloke, fast, fast bloke won the race. Turns out. I mean, Bolt, Usain Bolt was the exception because it was a bit of a, like watching a giraffe beat a cheetah. He was just so big, tall, and then just kind of ran fast. But that's, well, I guess that is 100 metres, isn't it? But... <laughs> <laughs> but it was quite impressive watching He stepped him. over the mark. <laughs> Now it's time for But Your Emails. This week, DPT says, Now that COVID cases are falling, I see lots of the usual suspects arguing on social media and in opinion columns that somehow this proves lockdowns were a waste of time. Given that facts and death tolls seem not to move people these days, what are the best arguments against people who try to discredit strict COVID measures? Or should I even bother? Christina, what are your thoughts on that one? We don't bother. Don't I mean, work. honestly, if, if at this point you don't think restrictions work, then then you're not nothing's going to change your mind. I mean, it's an infectious disease. It spreads by people being in contact with each other. <laughs> if you restrict contact, it's going to reduce transmission. I mean, there's no there's no logic to thinking it doesn't work. You can have really interesting debates about whether it's worth it, what the trade-offs are, how do you support people who are affected by lockdowns, but saying they don't work, I mean, it's just nonsense and you shouldn't give it the time of day. Okay, DPT, don't bother. Just try and zone out. <laughs> try and zone out. <laughs> Anybody else got any thoughts? And that's the show. My thanks to Alex. Thank you. Ian. Thank you. And our guest, Christina Pargle. Thank you for having me. In the extra bit for Patreon backers, we're talking about Latin. Gavin Williamson wants to bring it back. And now everyone's in a rage about elitism, private schools, passports to privilege, and whether Caecilius est in horto or not. You'll hear a quick preview of this epic symposium after our theme song, <laughs> Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest backers. 
Many thanks and best wishes from me to Dave Home, Nikki Maram, Mike Wilcox, Dayron Green, Chris Jobling, Nick Young, and Renate Schmidt. And it's a big hello from me to Alison Bland, Jack Lewis, Nicola Garvin, Eugene Leahy, Jeff Clarence, Barry Nags, and Chris Parry. And finally, thanks from me to Diana Howlett, Jeff Hearman, Kobe, Norman Driscoll, Leslie Buchanan, James Fiddler, and Kim Reynolds. Oh God, what now? Was presented by Ross Taylor with Ian Dunt and Alex Andre. The producer was Andrew Harrison. Scripting was by Jacob Archbold and Nat Amos. The assistant producer was Yelna Sofronievich. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Salveti, heikest extra sectionum nobis patronis. Or, greetings, this is the extra bit for our patrons. And we're going to talk about Latin. We're not going to talk in Latin because while I'm a big fan of modern foreign languages, my own knowledge of the language extends as far as the words to come in a Burana, which is not very far. <laughs> Gavin Williamson, the man who's done so much for education during this pandemic, <laughs> wants to introduce it to 40 lucky state schools. He says it will reduce its elitist connotations, although these days you can learn it on Duolingo. But what do we think? I confess I'm mostly hacked off that this stuff gets attention when the government refuses to fund kids to catch up after the pandemic. But Christina, you learned Latin from the age of eight. Did you enjoy it? I loved it. I mean, I mean, the thing is, I do genuinely, I loved Latin. And Could you were, do this, Can you do this answer in Latin? No. Because no. you, do, you, you don't learn to speak it, you learn to translate it. Oh. Okay. Um, yeah. And occasionally you might even have to write it, but that's very advanced Latin. I only went up to GCSE. Um, but I loved it because there's something quite logical about it when you do the translation. I learned all my grammar from Latin. Mm. I have to say that in every language that I've learned, it has been really, really useful. And when I go abroad now, even though I've never learned Spanish or Italian, you can kind of get by reading it because of Latin. And it tells you, teaches you a lot about classical history. Actually, you learn a lot of classical history in it and you really learn how so much of Roman life underpins our legal system, our way of life, mm. our language. And you can see the connections between the different European languages as well from Latin. So I'm a big fan of Latin. But having said that, I mean, it, as a policy, it doesn't really make much sense. You know, he says, oh, it improves modern languages. But well, then make modern languages compulsory again at GCSE. I mean, you know in terms of being elitist I mean I kind of worry that it's about people who went to a good school or not a good school but okay posh school like me and did Latin and they think okay well how do I make other people have the experience I did and they pick Latin and not think about all the other things they could be doing like thinking about the impact of um, food insecurity poverty housing insecurity catching up um, role modelling networks all of those things that we take what I took for granted and have helped me enormously that's what we need to be tackling right but the problem is tackling that is hard and you can't do it with four million quid and 40 schools so so it's a kind of it's just another gimmick and you know I'm kind of sad they co-opted Latin into it because I do think it's an amazing subject 
That was a trailer for the bonus edition of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll be helping the podcast and we'll be pathetically grateful. <laughs> and don't forget our new weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, out every Monday morning. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Thank you.